That's exactly what happened at my Thanksgiving this Thursday. We sang and we resolved all of our differences and it was awesome. Right? No. Um, Don't you just love this time of year? Any of you have kind of those people in the family that just rub you the wrong way? Some of them are here today, so you can't answer. I know, just, just kind of do a little bit, and, and I'll, I'll know that they're sitting next to you. Well, this year we're going to do a Christmas series starting today called Crazy Christmas. And we're going to talk about Jesus had those kind of people in his family tree. And you may not realize that. Um, you don't have to do a little Ancestry.com thing to find it. It's clearly listed in the scriptures. And, and so I want to give you kind of a little bit of background before we dive into this today. Now, most of you know this, but the Bible is a collection of ancient manuscripts or ancient letters that are put together into what we call the Word of God. The first four uh, of those letters in the New Testament are what we call the Gospels, and Gospels means good news. What is the good news? The good news is that God sent his son Jesus to earth to uh, pay for the sins of mankind. And the first four books of the New Testament, that's the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are what we call the Gospels. Now, Mark and John don't say anything about Jesus' birth. They start 30 years later with John the Baptist, 30 years after Jesus' birth. Um, The other two, Matthew and Luke, talk about the birth of the Savior. Now, Luke begins with the angel announcing to Jesus' cousin's father that his wife was going to have a baby. Anybody know who Jesus', Jesus cousin's father was? He was a priest. He was in the temple. Zacharias, thank you. Somebody got it down here. And they, the angel told him, your wife is going to have a child. Do you remember his wife's name? Elizabeth. Now, this was a big deal because Elizabeth was barren. And so Zacharias is in the temple. He's doing his thing as a priest. And an angel shows up to him and he says, your wife is going to have a child. and You're going to name him John. And that was kind of this big deal. And uh, anyway, so she was pregnant. And that was that was huge that the angel announced to him. And then six months later, the same angel goes and talks to Mary and says, Mary, guess what? Highly favored one. You get to have God's son. And she's a virgin. And she's like, okay. And, and how's this going to happen? And she said, and the angel said, well, it's because the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The, the child you carry within you is going to be the Messiah. And by the way, Elizabeth, your cousin, she's pregnant too. And then the angel says to her, nothing is impossible with God. So that's cool. It starts with a story. But you know what Matthew starts with? The family tree. What would you rather read, a story or, or a family tree? A couple weeks ago, my brother and I, my oldest brother and I went to Borger because we were trying to winterize mom and dad's house. And I've been reading through Ted Decker's series, and I've read through the Circle series and the Elyon series and all this different stuff. And I love Ted Decker. It's a novel, and I've got it on my little uh, iPad, and it's on my little Kindle edition. We get back on the plane, and it's kind of a a crowded flight, so I'm sitting right next to my brother, and I'm reading my my novel, and my brother goes, Hey, did I tell you what I found on Ancestry.com? And I'm reading, I go... No. And I keep reading. He goes, it's really interesting. And I keep reading. And he goes, look at this. And he sticks his laptop over in front of mine. And he goes, look. And he shows me like 15 or 20 uh, of our, our generations. And there's only three pictures. And there's hundreds of people on there. And he's going, well, this person was here. And this person was here. And this person. And I was going, I don't care. I'm reading my novel. And he didn't care that I was reading my novel. When you read through the Bible and you come to the book of Matthew and you get to these first few verses, many of you are going to go, I don't care. It doesn't make any sense to me. But hopefully after this series, it will. Um, 
Let's start off in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Y'all, y'all riveted right now, right? You're into it. Okay, well, let me, let me tell you that um, it's real tempting when you get here because I've read the Bible through several times, and it's tempting when you get here just to skip on down to verse 18 because that's where the good stuff happens. That's when Jesus shows up, right? But... There is a history lesson we need to understand. So let's back up and figure out what Matthew is doing. What's he trying to accomplish? First of all, Matthew is writing to Jews. And he is trying to make the case that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And and Jews would immediately ask, well, if he's the Messiah, is he related to David? Because everybody in in, uh, Israel knows that if there's going to be a physical, literal Messiah, he has to be related to David. The Messiah has to be related to him. God... Hundreds of years before had promised David that he would have someone on the throne. And if there was going to be this Messiah, he had to be related to him. So 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years later, we're reading a story that's written for us, but it wasn't written to us. And we've got to understand to whom it was written in order to appreciate what Matthew is doing here. So he's answering these two questions. Who are Jesus' relatives? Does he even qualify to be the Messiah? So he reconstructs the family tree. And this is where it gets kind of crazy. Jesus' family tree has some really strange branches. There are four women mentioned here. And these women are not the type of people that you should be mentioning. Um, I mean, in this society, the only thing that mattered was who's your daddy. They didn't care who your mommy, right? Women could not even testify in a court of law. And and Matthew throws in four women. and, And not only does he throw in four women, but he mentions... Some women that should not be mentioned at parties. Like if you had a relative that you, you didn't want to talk about, you just avoid that topic. Like, like let's say you're related to Miley Cyrus. You wouldn't mention that. Okay, we'll move on. You wouldn't mention that at parties. If the point is to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, why mention the unmentionables? Well, at the time of Jesus' birth, the only written histories were written by people who were paid to write it down. So like the last couple of centuries B.C. till the first couple of centuries A.D., if, if you read a history, it's somebody who was written to, to uh, write that down. So a bigwig, a king, an emperor, some big politician, some big warrior would pay somebody to write down the history of their family. And if you're going to write down, if you're going to pay somebody to write down the history of your family, do you want them to include the good stuff or the bad stuff? The good stuff! Don't mention that other stuff. And so you would have these, these big deals made about uh, conquest. You'd have, if they had a warrior son, they would have a big story about the warrior son. They wouldn't mention so much the mama's boy who cooked. Didn't, didn't go there because they wanted stuff that made them look good. And if you did not write something flattering to the person who was paying you, in that society you could be killed. So you have, you have a couple of incentives to write good things about the people that you're writing their history down. But we come to Matthew, and Matthew doesn't know any better. Matthew just jumps in, and he mentions some people. He goes out of the way to mention those people in Jesus' family tree. Should have been all men. And he's trying to connect Jesus the man with David the man, so why even stick four women in there? Two of these women have R-rated stories. I'm I'm not kidding you. R-rated. Some of it I cannot read in here next week when we get started on one of these. Three of the women weren't Jews. Come on, Matthew! Don't you know anything? Look at verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez 
and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. All right, so here's the first woman we get in Jesus' family tree, Tamar. We'll look at her next week. This is probably the most graphic story. If you want to read ahead, read some of the stuff that I'm not going to read next week. It's in Genesis chapter 38. Um, it's, it's crazy. There was no need to mention her. And every Jew who read this story that Matthew had written down gets here and goes, Tamar! No, they gasp. Why even go there? Look at verse 4. Ram was the father of Amenadab. Amenadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. O-M-G. Rahab is the second one. Rahab has this little... Um, she's got a nickname attached to her. Does anybody... Rahab the... Well, prostitute's actually a good word. We're going to use that one. But in the, in the NIV, it's the harlot. Rahab the harlot. You can read in Joshua when the two spies go in to look out the land. They go to stay at Rahab the harlot's house. What is she doing? Why would you put a prostitute in the family tree of Jesus if you didn't have to go there? Oh my goodness. All right. Boaz was the father of Obed, we continue, whose mother was Ruth. Okay, Ruth's a good story. Ruth's in the Old Testament. She's got a whole book named after her. Um, If you're going to stick a woman in there, at least this is a good one in the Old Testament. But guess what? She's not a Jew. She's from the land of Moab. And and, and when you hear the the name Moab, you immediately think back to Amos, right? The book of Amos. I'm kidding. I I know you don't. To whom is Matthew writing? Jews. And they all knew she wasn't Jewish. And the way she even comes to Israel is just this strange conglomeration of things. And you just scratch your head and you're going, Matthew, have you lost your mind? Why would you put this stuff in there? You're trying to convince Jews that Jesus is related to, uh, to David. Why mention this woman? He mentions another one. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. And you go, finally, somebody good. We get to King David and you can relax, except you can't. David was the father of Solomon, and at this point it should go, and Solomon was the father of, but look what it says. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Does not even mention her name. Just was Uriah's wife. Why would he throw this in there? The worst blemish in David's life is in the family tree of Jesus. I don't understand this. He doesn't even mention her name. But everybody knows her name, don't they? I mean, y'all didn't have to look up there to see it. Even non-Christians know who David committed adultery with. Who was it? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Not only does he mention another woman here, but he makes it worse. This woman was another man's wife. And the Jews are going, "Um, you know, we really want to think good of King David. He's like our favorite king, and we don't want to dwell on his flaws, so don't bring this stuff up. But the biggest blemish was that he committed adultery with a friend, with one of his army officer's wife. He commits adultery. Uriah was an excellent soldier. Uriah was a man of integrity. You read his story. He was somebody that David should have respected and should have promoted. But instead what he does, after he impregnates Bathsheba, he sends Uriah to the front of the battles. And and he even sent the, the note with Uriah's hand. Sealed it. Gave it to Uriah. Said, give this to your commander. Gives it to the commander and he says, go to the fiercest place of fighting. Put Uriah there. When, when the archers come out and they start shooting, everybody pull back. And Uriah was such a noble man, he didn't pull back with everybody else. And he lost his life. And the Bible tells us that, that after the period of mourning, 
David married her because we have to be proper here. We couldn't marry her during the period of mourning. We've just impregnated her when she was married to another man. But we have to wait on the period of mourning. He marries her. Matthew doesn't get it, does he? He's emphasizing the wrong people. What's up with that? And by the way, there were some really cool women he could have mentioned, but he gives us Tamar, Rahab the prostitute, Ruth, and Uriah's wife. The question is why? Now you got to think this through. Matthew had just spent three years of his life watching Jesus. He saw him die on the cross, he stood next to an empty grave, and he remembered all of Jesus' teaching. And the point of his book, the point of the whole book, Matthew knew he's about to tell this story, was that the shady characters were the people that Jesus came for. The notorious sinners, those people, that's the point of the story he's about to tell. And so he includes them in the story of Jesus. Matthew knew that, that sin was the problem that we had to face and that Jesus was the answer to the one problem that we had to face. So here's, here's really the deal. 2,000 years later, the reason we're reading this, the reason we're focusing on that, is because you are the reason for the season. Those types of people are the reason Jesus came. It's the reason we celebrate Christmas. Christmas is about light coming to darkness, life coming to a place of death, grace overcoming law, forgiveness in a place of condemnation. Matthew also knew that this was his story. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and and Bathsheba, those were his type of people. They were the folks that he hung out with. We know this because the most embarrassing day of Matthew's life is when he met Jesus. The day he met Jesus, Matthew was in a town called Capernaum. It's on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus shows up, and a bunch of people know that he's going to be there, so he gets off the boat, and these people have heard that he's coming, so they bring their paralyzed friend, and they throw him down at the feet of Jesus just to see what would happen. Jesus looks at him, and he goes, "Um, Grace to you, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Don't you know the friends are going, That is not why we brought him here. We heard you could heal him, but Jesus said, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And uh, the religious police, the Pharisees are nearby. And they say, you can't say that. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus goes, by the way, have I not told you that I have the authority to forgive sins? And then he looks at the paralyzed man and he says, take up your mat and walk. And so the paralyzed man picks up his mat and walks off. And the Bible says the people were amazed because they'd never seen such authority given to a man. And we don't know where Matthew was when, when all of that happened. Um, but we know that right after that happened, he writes that he met Jesus. So this is what I think happened. Jesus comes, gets off the boat, comes down, heals a man. He says, your sins are forgiven. He heals him. The Pharisees get mad. And then all of a sudden, the, part, the, the, the crowd parts and Jesus walks up. And the very next verse in Matthew's book says, and I was sitting at a tax collector's booth And Jesus came to see me. Let's pick up the story in Matthew chapter 9. And I want to pick it up when the man gets healed in verse 7. And the man jumped up and went home. Fear swept through the crowd as they saw this happen. And they praised God for sending a man with such great authority. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. What's the big deal about sitting at a tax collector's booth? Well, most of you all know this, but... But it was uh, Romans sold the right to collect taxes to Roman people. 
And so if you wanted to go to Palestine, you could pay the Romans enough money and they would say, okay, you have the right to go and collect taxes from this, uh, this province called Palestine. But like Ticketmaster or StubHub, you have the right to put a surcharge on any of the taxes that you collect. And as long as you collect enough taxes for Rome, that surcharge can be as much as you want. And so you could get rich off of other people's taxes. And taxes were everywhere. They had an income tax, they had a bridge tax, a pole tax, a fruit tax, a meat tax, a seaport tax. Whenever the Romans needed more money, they would just invent a new tax. Kind of sounds like the United States. They sold... Um, they sold the opportunity to collect taxes from a province for five years. So if you're the person who's lucky enough to get that, five years you're going to be collecting taxes from these people. And if you're a Roman and you go into a Jewish province to collect taxes, how popular are you? You're an outcast. So the Romans are smart. They're like, let's hire a Jew. And, And some people will sell their mother to make a buck. And so some Jews did that. And that's what Jewish tax collectors did. They were a complete sellout to their God, to their country, to their people, all to make a buck. And uh, this is kind of funny because Jews who did this were so low, they had their own category. So like when they were talking about people who they despised, they would say tax collectors and sinners. Sinners were actually higher than tax collectors. So if you had an attitude towards somebody, you'd say tax collectors. And then sinners were just a step above them, and then there, uh, there were other people. So they had their own category. They'd say, he's worse than a tax collector or a sinner. You were a special kind of low. So the Jews even had an ex- a scale of acceptable jobs that a young man could do if he wanted to marry their daughter. So in, if I'm Jewish back then, and, and you came to me, and you said, I want to marry your daughter, and I would ask you what your, your profession is, and, I, and you say, tax collector, nope, she does not have to marry you. Sorry, dude, take a hike. There was one job, I'm not making this up, one step higher than that was dung collector. It was okay in Jewish society for your daughter to marry a dung collector but not marry a tax collector. Dung collector? I mean, come on. You're going behind the animals. It's like Dusty the Street Sweeping Gal, you know. That's an old, old reference to a, a Mighty Machines we used to watch. She was a street sweeper and she sang this song and she went along cleaning up all the stuff. Well, every parade we have that the horses at the, at the back... What does Dusty the street sweeping gal do? Sweeps up dung. They put the horses back on purpose. That was a better job in their eyes than someone who collected taxes. So, where's Matthew sitting when Jesus comes walking up with his followers? At a tax collector's booth with his tax collector's friends. And don't you know, don't you know Peter was going, tax collectors. I mean, I can just see the veins sticking out, you know, all tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus says in verse 9, follow me and be my disciple. So Matthew got up and followed him. Can you, the disciples are back and going, I can't do, what? what you do? And Jesus goes, shh, 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 guys, Matthew, come on, come follow me. And the Bible says Matthew got up and followed him. <laughs> and then they went to his house. Don't you know Peter came unglued? I wish I could have seen that. He throws a party and invites all of his tax collector friends. So all of his friends come and hang out with all of Jesus' friends. Never in history had anything like this happened. That someone who was a religious leader, someone who claimed to be the Messiah, God's son, would hang out with those kinds of people. So don't you know that Matthew smiled? When he told this story, he knows what's about to come. 
He knows what he's about to tell in the next several chapters. So he goes back and he says, Jesus was related to David. Jesus is the Messiah. And by the way, check out some of his people. Now look what it says. Tax collectors uh, are, are hanging out with Jesus and the Pharisees come outside. And the Pharisees won't come into the tax collector's house because tax collector cooties were a special kind of cooties that you couldn't get rid of very easily. And I'm, I mean, I'm actually being serious. If you were to go into a tax collector's house, you would have to go through a purification system before you could go to the temple. So they're standing outside. They refuse to go in where Jesus is. And they talk to some of his followers and say, Hey, dude, how come your teacher hangs out with people like this? Look what it says. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, there it is, came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the New Living Translation actually says, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Kind of gets the, the tone there, doesn't it? And Jesus overhears them. Look what Jesus says in verse 12. When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Matthew and his peeps could have been uh, offended by that, right? Jesus hanging out with Matthew and all of his friends. The well people come up. Jesus goes, oh, y'all don't need... It's the sick people that I've come to hang out with. The messed up people I've come to hang out with. They could have been offended, but they weren't. You want to know why? People who are far from God know that they are far from God. Religious people, not so much. They think they're close when they're really far away. Look at verse 13. Then Jesus added, Now go and learn the meaning of the scriptures. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Jesus came for sinners. Now, if I can get this up here without knocking things over. This is, this is radical because never in history had anybody come and taught a message like Jesus did. You might need to turn up a little more light there, Joe. Because for all history, the way people would, would try to approach God was based on what I do. If I do enough good stuff... If I go to church, if I give to the church, if I help poor people, if I do enough good stuff, God has to pay attention to me based on what I do. Or the other side is that, what I don't do. So if I do enough good stuff, I don't do enough bad stuff, God, you've got to pay attention to me. You're obligated to look at me, God, because I did enough to earn your favor. And nowhere in the pages of Scripture do you find that. Because throughout this Bible, it's always God pursuing people who could not come into his holy presence. You want to know how holy God is? Look in the Old Testament. When, when they were outside Mount Sinai, Jesus, uh, God's about to give the Ten Commandments. There's a point where the people finally beg Moses not to have them even look at the mountain. Because they said, you talk to God for us because if we talk to him, he will destroy us because we're sinful people. That's how people reacted to God's holiness. They were like, oh, I'm going to die. God says, you should. But nobody can ever do enough or you can't avoid enough to earn God's favor. So Jesus comes along and Matthew realizes he changes all of the rules. And Jesus said, it's no longer based on what you do. That's not how you come to God. You come to God based solely on what Jesus has done. And the story of Matthew's book 
the story of this family tree of Jesus is that not only are those people, those people part of the story, and that's one of the things I love about the Bible. The Bible never editorializes out the bad people. Because <laughs> we're all bad people. And we're all a part of the story, but it goes deeper in that. Matthew's story he's written it is we're a part of the story, yes, but we're the point of the story. Because people far from God realize you can't do anything to earn God's favor. If you're going to get to heaven, the only hope you have is to come based on somebody else's goodness. And that's Jesus Christ. So Matthew's about to tell this incredible story where Jesus is going to die for sinners. And if you think you're good enough, you're going to hell. But if you'll admit that you aren't good enough, God says, let me do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. And so he sends Jesus to stretch out his arms and die on the cross and become a bridge for us. A bridge to cross that great divide. A cross to bridge the great divide. And he says, if you'll humble yourself and you'll come to God based solely on what Jesus has already done, you can't add to it, you can't take away from it. If you'll just accept it, that's the real meaning of Christmas. And I'm kind of excited about this whole story because I know a lot of the stories of people in this church. We're built for those kind of people. When I sit in my small group and I hear stories that, that actually would let your, your jaw would drop, and then I see the grace of God come and cover people, I say, we're doing exactly what Jesus Christ would have done. I want to spend my life with those people because my Savior did as well. Would you bow your heads for a moment? I'm just kind of curious today to know if, if there's any sinners here. Just raise your hands if, if you know that you're a sinner. If there's stuff in your past that you're embarrassed of. I think that's all of us. And the message of the Christ child is that he came for you. Nothing you do can keep the love of God from you. It's just a decision that you have to make. You can't earn God's favor. You can't be so bad that God won't love you. But one thing God cannot do is he cannot make you love him back. He cannot make you choose him. And so he sent this little baby. He didn't come as a cow. He didn't come as an alien. He came as a baby because nobody's afraid of a baby. And he grew up and lived a sinless life and he died for your sins and mine. The point of the story is you. The question is, how are you going to respond to that? Father, we just ask you to Open our eyes this Christmas season to the real meaning of the story. Help us to be givers, not just receivers. And help us to look for somebody less fortunate than we are that we can reach out to and share the love of Christ with. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.